out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest, or even two. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Scottish indie band, the Wendy's, um, who sort of formed mid-80s and went through into the 90s and are still active today. Anyway, this is the interview and um, just a little bit of background about it because it's one of those exciting Zoom ones. Um, it does feature Jonathan Renton, vocalist to begin with, and then Ian White joins us a little bit after about 10 minutes on the, um, the guitarist of the band. Um, I could tell you what happened, but that will just bore you to tears. Um, and also, there, there is a sort of a 45-minute interview, um, and then it stops, and then we have another bit of interview as well for various reasons that I won't go into, but it's about Zoom and things like that. Anyway, um, and the reason I won't tell you, um, yeah, it's about inviting people into the room of Zoom, and uh, that's why Paul Ian was left out for a little bit of time. Anyway, look, there was just me and Jonathan by the fire with a glass of red wine. Actually, they were both drinking red wine. That's what you do on a Sunday evening in Scotland. Anyway, look, um, after some casual chat, we got down to, yes, Jonathan's early musical influences. Yeah, check it out. Anyway, Jonathan, tell us all about it and much, 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 much more. It's a little bit quiet to begin with, just turn your headphones up and then um, Ian comes storming in with a power cord it's going to be fascinating I hope you can tell the difference between the two members who knows anyway have fun myself personally I remember TV things like uh, the Elvis Presley movies yes and just basically not hearing a lot of I mean I think my mum and dad played occasional music in the house but not an awful lot but uh, I think the main thing was hearing music via the TV. And then it wasn't until really we got to the, a bit later on the top of the pop stage that I've got vague memories of uh, seeing things like glam rock and stuff that were quite interesting. Uh, it got me into music quite a wee bit. Yes. So, so your parents weren't remotely kind of musical, but... No, they were. They were, they were, but they just didn't have play much music in the house. They had a record player, but it wasn't a, a normal thing to play. I mean, both like my mum and I think my dad had uh, good singing voices and they used to do things when they were younger, but they weren't like, they didn't, I mean, I don't play an instrument. I just pretend and uh, make noises on keyboards occasionally. But uh, like mum and dad had nice singing voices and they used to, before they had a family, they had to, were in choirs and stuff like that. Yes. So did you, because cause you're, you're one year younger than me, so kind of the, the world that is, I mean, you've got the prog, uh, not prog rock, the, the glam rock, which obviously I was very excited by, Sweet, you yeah. know, and um, Gary Glitter, let's face it, and, and then T-Rex, and then it was luckily David Bowie was my first love. So what was your kind of moment when you saw something and went, God, I'm going to buy that single? Well, I think it was much, it was later on after that, that I think, and I was, I was lucky in a way that, well, my brother Arthur isn't uh, with us, he's the bassist in the band. Yes. He's a few years older than me, so he sort of drove more the things before me. He was maybe a bit more aware in things, the bands and stuff than I was, being that three years older. 
Yes. And uh, the initial thing, I think we bought, I don't know if it was jointly or something, but I've got a vague memory of going into a wheel wash and getting one of these top of the pops records. And I think it had like the sweet on it and they had Lou Reed and another couple of ones at that time. But the one thing, I think the one album that uh, my brother got initially was say, uh, The Stranglers Black and White. Right. And that was one of the first records we got together. Yeah. I remember really listening to, and we became absolutely massive Stranglers fans and couldn't see them often enough. Yeah. And that was big things with us, definitely. So, so recently there's been a book out, hasn't there, that um, documents lots of gigs happening in Scotland. Um, so were you, were you sort of starting to go to gigs yourself? Yeah, um, yeah. Again, I was very lucky because normally I might have not been allowed in, but the big places, it was like the Apollo in Glasgow, Playhouse in Edinburgh. But thankfully, my mum allowed me to go along because I had an older brother going. And they used, we left in, right in the middle of Edinburgh and Glasgow in the wee time. Oh my God, it's frozen. All interested in, and they used to organise a minibus to go through to either gigs at the Apollo or gigs in Edinburgh at the Playhouse. And used to go regularly to see uh, Stranglers, it was like Susie and the Banshees, all these bands that were playing around at the time. And that was just when I was maybe about 16. Right. So that was fantastic. So, so when you hit 16, you were probably, that was probably 1981. So during that period, we'd sort of got into the post-punk scene. And then you had the kind of famous, I guess it was Postcard Records and Orange Juice. But you also had, before that, there was like Alex Harvey, and then you had the skids and, and obviously these kind of great bands from Scotland that was were happening and then Simple Minds. So were you beginning to sort of think about being in a band at that stage in the sort of early 80s? For myself, uh, I used to piss about with one of my pals and we were never particularly musical, but I managed to persuade my mum that uh, with something like my birthday money and that saved up to get one of these tiny wee Casio keyboards. And it was only, it was only about yawn size, but it had a basic drum beat. You had maybe about eight different drum beats and a few backing beats. But with that, one of my pals had a, uh, a guitar and we used to make uh, songs together. And it was just, we never thought any further than that. It was just a really good laugh. And uh, between 16 and 17, we managed to wang a lacare and hide up in our bedrooms and make a racket together and just but we did that regularly without thinking because we used to hang out and go to gigs all the time regularly and I suppose it, at the back of your mind you might think you're wanting to emulate your heroes or whatever but we were just doing it for a laugh and not thinking it would ever go anywhere it was just an enjoyable thing to do it was never serious but it was just these mad uh, pop disasters that we used to make. Yes, absolutely. Can anyone can anyone hear me or see me or Ian? Ian has yes. entered the room. Yeah. I can I yeah. can definitely hear you, but I can't see you. Okay, right. Okay. I think if you uh, hover in your bottom left, you'll be able to sort of hit that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. God, have God. you been waiting long? Yeah, 
Shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 I was getting no replies on Messenger, and I was thinking, wait a minute, is my Wi-Fi going down or what? <laughs> I can okay, tell you. Right. I can tell you what happened. I couldn't the screen, the invite thing. I thought, oh, hello, Ian. Cheesy, crazy. That's oh, wait. Is that me? Yeah. That's you. You. You're there. Yeah. We're, we're having a three-way conversation. Hi friend. there. I'm just out the bath. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm just out the bath and drinking red wine. That's that's good. I'm you really know? sorry, but I didn't <laughs> see that. Uh, the the side was... of the screen was there. So I was just All talking. Right. I was just talking to. Um, Jonathan, yeah, not Valerie, and, um, and but tonight he's not Valerie tonight. <laughs> About his early musical influences, how did you? I mean, when did you start sort of finding yourself? Because you were not the singer; you were a guitar player. So you yeah. obviously had to sort of put some more work in. God, that's such a thing <laughs> to say about. <laughs> yeah, the the singer. It's such an easy job. All that lyric writing and stuff. Oh, no. um, I I don't know. I mean, I I. You know, I was like into this sort of, I suppose what my, when when I was discovering pop music, it was, it was the glam era. And so I just thought pop music means shiny, glittery, over the top kind of people, you know? Yes. Uh, and so that was my first real kind of, uh, you know, my first real knowledge about pop music, I suppose. And um, I, I've said to people in the past, in terms of, uh, because I, I, mean, I, I think I, I quite, I like the sound of things as much as anything else. Um, what I mean is the sound rather than necessarily what the music is. Um, and I remember as a kid, I had a little uh, shoebox sized uh, cassette recorder thing yes we love cards top of the pops and stuff off the tv and uh but one of the other things recorded was the theme tune to the monkeys classic and, and i just remember being really blown away but I, I remember sitting in the kitchen playing it over and over and really loving how it sounded well god what about the banana splits that was also the other one that blew my oh yeah mind. Yes. So yeah. look, but you oh, the double you... deckers, double deckers. Yeah, that's Saturday morning. Well. Yes. So when did you dis... when did you actually buy a guitar or have a guitar in your hands? Uh, I think I was I was thirteen or fourteen, and no one else in the family played anything. Uh, we hardly had any records in the house. Didn't really have a record player till I was at late primary school kind of given to us by another family member with a few singles and a few albums and uh yeah so it, my musical upbringing wasn't it wasn't like I was being pushed into music or anything like that uh but I had a friend that uh, just when I started high school um who said he was going to learn to play guitar and I said oh I quite fancy that as well Yes. So, well, it's interesting because because when my sort of coming from a working class country background, I think when my parents got married, you know, they kind of literally had to sell most stuff, including mm -hmm. you know, the record player and my dad's records. And we didn't get a record player in the house until 
the early 70s, you know, yeah. and, and up to then it would be in top of the pops and the radio. And it's like, yeah. oh, I've got this record. And then they've like three records that you played there, you know. Yeah. And then I, yeah. I had an older brother who was seven years old and he started buying prog rock records and it was like, oh, they're very interesting. So I got, you know, I followed him because I thought he was, I thought he was marvelous. So then it looked, so then fast forward into the 80s, God, only 40 years ago. So, so then you know, <laughs> there was a great explosion that was kind of indie pop started, wasn't there? Yeah. And postcard records and orange juice. And then obviously that whole world that was Alan Horn and people like that. So yeah. did you start to, because we had the punk period, which I was too young for, then post-punk and then indie started. Did you start to get very excited by that? Um, I think that, I mean, I mean, I remember jumping about the kitchen as, as a 13-year-old to the jam and things like that. But then, yeah, I think it was, uh, I remember seeing Echo and the Bunnymen on TV. Uh, it, it, well, it was before that, it was, the, it was excerpts from the Shine So Hard movie that was shot at Seth, Sefton Park. Right. And they released the EP, uh, which I think was made, was that called Shine So Hard? I can't remember. But uh, I went out the next day and bought it anyway, and it was a live EP, and I kind of just started listening to other things after that. Because I, mm. I had an older brother as well, and he was uh, had taken me down the route of all the classic rock stuff, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, stuff like that. Yeah. Jimmy I was a big fan of Jim Hendrix, more for his vocals actually than his guitar playing. Actually, I know he was so so on the guitar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just like same as everyone else, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. but I really liked his songs, liked his voice, you yes. know. I uh, loved it, loved his guitar playing, obviously, but uh, great songs. Yes. So, Jonathan, as we trucked into the eighties, we mm. had eighty-three, the, the Smiths. See, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, the years of the Smiths, then things changed quite interestingly. So what was, what was going on for you guys? Because you obviously had got to your late teens by then. Yeah, well, I think a big shift for me was I, I moved into Edinburgh. So there was lots more options for going to gigs. And I just went to as many gigs as I possibly could, all like the student unions and different places. And there seemed to be just absolutely hundreds of bands who were, I'd never heard of before, who were absolutely brilliant. It was just, it's one of the things I absolutely thrived on, was just seeing live music. It was just fantastic. And just seeing, and well, before, initially I was used to going to seeing, you know, enormous gigs. That's the only ones that been to seeing like Stranglers at the Apollo or something like that. From going to seeing a small gig, but it's absolutely packed, and you're right up next to the, the band playing. And that was so electric. That was fantastic. Yeah. It was great, brilliant. And there's just hundreds of bands playing around. And I mean, I think you got, it was Edinburgh had a really good scene at that time. I think it's not, it's got better recently, but for a while in Edinburgh, it wasn't great. But at that time, there seemed to be every band something playing Edinburgh as well. And the yeah. tours were great. So yeah, so then as the 80s trucked on, when did when did the band form? Uh, it was kind of, so, you know, Arthur, Jonathan's brother, Arthur, uh, I, was, I shared the student flat with him. And then after he, when he graduated, he bought a bass because 
he'd always been kind of write, writing tunes in his head. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to play them or, or whatever, but he was coming up with tunes all the time. So he'd, he, he came around to my flat and we kind of mucked about with some stuff. And then Jonathan, who uh, I've got such admiration for Jonathan because, it, like he was saying, he uh, just went to see live bands all the time. Because Jonathan's experience, as far as I can tell, of being a student was getting his grant and then spending it on either musical equipment or going to see bands. I don't know if he actually went to any lectures or anything, but uh, so. Arthur and I had been kind of playing about, making up some little tunes. Jonathan had a four-track, little, uh, tiny little four-track cassette machine, and he allowed us to record with it. And then we gave him it back. And then the next thing, he had put some vocals on. And uh, I suppose that was when we thought, oh, there might be a band here. Yes. So did it yeah. feel like the, with the, there was four of you, did you have a moment where you said, this is it, this is us, and this is the band? Uh, well, it went from me, Jonathan, and Arthur. Uh, we got our friend Pete in on keyboards. Then we played a gig in a, a, at a party. And then Johnny, who became our drummer, came up and said, you don't have a drummer, you need a drummer, that's me. And uh, so then, uh, I don't know, we just kind of played about, we played little gigs, we played, went down terribly quite a lot, and then uh, we managed to get sport with the Happy Mondays, and that's when it kind of... Happened. Yeah, because we kind of, we got a lot of encouragement from uh, Derek Ryder, uh, Sean, Sean and Paul's dad, and uh, so we upped the rehearsals from once a week at most to kind of two, sometimes even three times a week. And so were you just, writing all your own material then? Yeah, no, we didn't ever, we only, we, oh, we only, we did uh, Heartbeat by Wire and much later we did You Do Right by Can. Jonathan, did we do anything else? Did we? In the early days we did some ridiculous attempts at covers and New Order songs. Yeah, <laughs> but that, yeah. That was, no, I, think a, we'd, I think we just, I think before we even had a drummer or whatever, just trying out things. Yeah, I think uh, we just kind of made up new words though. Yeah. Uh, I, I seem to remember one called the Beautiful Union Canal. It was something like that, Arise in Your Lives. So when you started, <laughs> when you, because the Happy Mondays, I remember they did a John Peel session and they did things like Freaky Dancer. So at that stage, they were still kind of in their infancy as well. And I yeah. suppose Bund had come out around. Yeah. Well, we supported them on the Bum Tour, but it was, uh, I don't know if Jonathan knew of them, but I mean, Arthur. Yeah, I was Arthur, amazed because it was Arthur. Arthur let me hear the single one time I was doing his flat, and I'd never heard your dance, and I'd never heard anything like it. So yeah. This is really good. And yeah, just, so it was, it was really Arthur that, for us, that disco discovered them, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. And then he, so, how many dates was on this tour? Oh, we only played one. We only played the Edinburgh. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We weren't greedy. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So then, so then, so 87 was when you formed. So when did uh, you, you sort of sign to a label? Uh, well, that was uh, right at the end of 90, signed to Factory. Right. 
So yeah. how did that come about? Because obviously at the time, did you were you not sort of tempted with all the other kind of indie labels that were around? Uh, I think that was the only solid offer we got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, anybody, we're, we're, I don't think it crossed their minds particularly that they wanted to be with anybody else. Yeah, they came up and asked us basically. Yeah, I mean, we it was kind of like you know if you if you're to make a wish list. You know, you've got your four ADs and factory and people like that. And they, they were more or less on the people we sent anything to. Although we did send stuff to Virgin and places like that. Uh, and they, did, they were quite encouraging, actually. What about creation records? How come you kind of didn't do creation? Oh, we contacted them as well. But I mean, they didn't. They obviously sussed us out straight away. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you had 53rd and 3rd finished by then. I can't remember, uh, but I mean, we were really into, uh, as Jonathan says, it was kind of like, I remember when I came to Edinburgh, I was going to see bands at the Playhouse. It was, you know, but it was uh, The Clash, The Bunnymen, uh, The Stranglers, Susie the Banshees, people like that. And then suddenly I stopped going to places like that and it was the smaller, the better. Yes. And uh, kind of, even if I go to a big gig somewhere, I really try to get somewhere near the front because I don't, it just doesn't feel like a gig if you can't see the whites of the eyes, you know? Totally, totally. Because yeah. it's kind of a weird time because then when you formed, you know, Ecstasy came along. So there was a sort of real shift in a lot of bands and their mm -hmm. sound, wasn't there? The next kind of generation that was coming along, you know, the next group of 16 to 18, 20 year olds, they, yeah. they were sort of getting into the kind of world that was the Soup Dragons and, yeah, the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream and, and yeah. sort of, you know, obviously Stone Roses came along. You had people like a guy called Gerald, that whole dance scene. Yep. And then sort of by 1990, we had the Seattle grunge scene. So mm -hmm. how were you sort of navigating those kind of tricky waters? Because obviously music's quite fickle, really, isn't it? And the fan and the music press kind of like the next kind of big thing. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I realise I'm speaking more than I probably need to, but uh, I don't know. We, we didn't ever think about that. We just, we didn't look outside our own rehearsal room, really. You know, at our own rehearsal room, our own record collections and our own experiences of seeing bands and things like that. So, uh, and even, what, you know, when we were on Factory, probably I listened to less music then. That, you know, actually listening to new stuff. Uh, during that period because we were so engrossed with what we were doing. Yes. I mean, Jonathan, what do you think? Well, I was I was so engrossed with listening to Ian and Arthur's new guitar tunes all the time and I was just absolutely, I just, I, I just thought it was the best thing ever and it was my job to just listen to them until I came up with lyrics and I was just absolutely obsessed by it. I just absolutely loved what they were doing. So that was my total creative Force what Arthur and Ian were doing, obviously Johnny and the drums as well. But uh, so I'd agree with Ian that I had less outside influences at that time. I was just totally obsessed with what we were doing as a band. It mm. didn't really affect anything what was going on outside different changes at all. Yeah. I mean, we were, were, we were aware of what was going on in a way. And I think probably Arthur. Because Arthur's always looking for, you know, 
as I said before, he's kind of like, I think he's like uh, always being right on, you know, whatever's going on. Um, so he, he's kind of always hyper interested in what's new. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it wasn't like we weren't aware and, you know, Johnny, our drummer as well, you know, he was into a lot of sort of house stuff and things like that. Um, it, it's, it's just not something we talked about, you know, we didn't really talk about it. And in fact, I mean, the, the whole grunge thing, that kind of, for me, kind of came up unawares because, I, as I say, I wasn't really listening to what was going on. Um, I think, actually, when we played with uh, Peter Hook's Revenge just before we signed uh, at Carlton Studios in Edinburgh, uh, I think two nights later, Nirvana played there. But I would, to be absolutely honest, I, I, th I know Arthur was aware of them, but I, w I wasn't even aware of them at the time. Yes. So what's your memories of, of getting the album? And, and obviously you had Ian Brodie as well, didn't you, from The Lightning mm. Seed. So were you kind of being pushed as the next big thing? Uh, I think we were because um, just from the from point of view uh, that uh, no, I think I think probably that was that was what was being pushed definitely because my friend Joe who uh, used to run Green Man Festival, I remember. She was a friend of uh, a friend of a. She, she was a friend. She was a sister of a friend, uh, and uh, she was up in Edinburgh. And she said, "Oh, wow, hearing loads of stuff about you guys." And she was kind of down in London, uh, running gigs out of what was it, Rock Circus or whatever it was called, uh, Rock Garden, Rock Garden, and things like that, and running gigs in various places. Um, so that was quite weird, but yeah, so I, I suppose that's what labels do, isn't it? Yes, start pushing it. They're not going to sign people and say they're not the next thing. <laughs> and you know, like, ignore this lot for a few years. Yes. Did you, um, were you having to gig quite a bit, getting pushed, or were you just kind of concentrating on, on sort of playing and getting the new album done? Uh, I think we would have liked to have played more, actually, in hindsight. And even at the time, you know, we were pretty keen to be playing more. But yeah, it was it was straight into we signed, we gave up our jobs, we went into the studio and started recording, you know. And four four weeks later, we had a final finalized album. And it, when sorry, your question was, what was it like getting this album? I remember it was in this. Uh, Cherry Tree in Kirby, Cherry Tree Hotel in Kirby, I think, just outside Liverpool, because um, we'd we'd finished the album at Amazon Studios, and uh, I remember we were in the bar, and we had a you know we had a cassette and, and a ghetto blaster, and uh, woman behind the bar was just saying, "Oh, this is that's great, it sounds great, you know, uh, best thing I've heard since I can't even remember what she said, but you know." Anyway, uh, so I remember we sat there, got very drunk, played it over and over and over again. And uh, I still to this day, it was kind of going back to the monkeys thing. I kind of feel that the album's, Chenzo, 
Townsend and Ian created some kind of sound on that album that I think is really quite still, I, I think it's quite unique. I'm not saying it's I'm not I'm not trying to say it's brilliant, it's the best thing ever or anything, but there's a there's a sound to the album which is quite uh, I, I don't know, I've, I've just not heard it anywhere else. There's something about it that when I go back to it, and I don't actually listen to that often, but when I do go back to it, I kind of think, wow, they, they really kind of created an atmosphere there. Yes. You know, that was quite unique to that album, I think. And Jonathan, think, Jonathan? Jonathan, were you pleased with it? Well, one thing, it's, it's hard to say, but, I mean, I absolutely loved it, but inevitably, I mean, that was the first time we as a band had been in a studio and had been properly produced. We'd done demos before in love, and we got Jamie at Chamber Studio did a fantastic job with us. But this was a, a really massive studio, an engineer, Genzo and Ian had lots of experience. Yeah. And just hearing them bring out our sound, it just took it to a new level for us. It just it sounded fantastic because... You know, if you're playing live on a stage of that, you enjoy the moment, but you don't actually hear what it's like yourself. So until you're in a studio hearing out these, you know, perfect studio monitors coming out, it's incredible. That, and to think, yeah, I actually sort of seem to disassociate it with it. That can't be me that's actually doing that. It sounds yeah. really good. Yeah. That's what, I th that's what I think whenever I go back and try to play one of the tunes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, so then what happens? Because the label, you know, factory is kind of not doing well. So then what happens with the band? Um, well, it's funny because you know, you say it's not doing well, but it in the at the same time there were the way our deal worked with them, they kind of got uh a percentage of anything that we signed abroad. So we signed to East West in the States. So that was a kind of, there, there was just phases. There was the new album, pushing it, doing the singles, do it, doing the gigs for those. And then suddenly it was, oh, we're now talking to people from East West in the States. And uh, so it didn't feel like it was coming to an end, if you like. <laughs> Uh, and, and in fact, the, the story, uh, the, I was going to say the story goes, but the, the way it went was that we literally went in and bought a whole load of equipment in a, a music shop in Edinburgh and then got a phone call about a week later saying the check was bouncing. And uh, that, was, that was the first thing we knew that there was something wrong. You know? Dear. Yeah, yeah. I remember getting it on the radio. The news that Factory Records had gone bust. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lovely moment. Yeah. So what, so what did that do to the band? I mean, did you have a quick meeting? I think we had a bit of, if we had a quick denial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> said, it'll, it'll be all right. Yeah, uh, I think you know. I don't think we ever did. We didn't because we didn't ever split up or anything. We kind of just potted along, got jobs, got this or that. Uh, Jonathan was suddenly so employable after after his previous experience. 
because <laughs> he had something something on his CV. <laughs> Definitely, it was very helpful. Excellent. Yes. So then the nineties come and go, and you then do your second album. Yeah. At the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. So what happened with the band then? Uh, well, we were becoming geographically kind of separated. Uh, Arthur had initially gone through to Glasgow, which that doesn't sound much, I mean, but it's a, you know, for rehearsals, it's a significant amount of time driving and things like that. And then uh, I think he moved to, when, I can't remember when he moved to London, but yeah. uh, I don't know, you know, yeah, I'm blaming Arthur. <laughs> no, uh, uh, yeah, we just kind of parted along playing gigs sporadically and that sort of thing. And then uh, kind of paused it for about 15 years. <laughs> no, uh, uh, when was it? It was from about 88 to about 97 to about uh, the next time we played was 2003. No. Yeah, 2003, wasn't it? My birthday, uh, we played a one-off gig, and then we played, uh, you know, very sporadically. And then yeah. a couple of years ago, we actually played three gigs, which was, mm -hmm. which was remarkable. Yeah. So how come the first album's not kind of that available, or have I just missed? Because I couldn't find it, actually. It was quite hard. Yeah. The... Warner Brothers say they own it, oh. and and we say we owned it, and uh, so it's kind of in a total limbo, which is a shame. And obviously, next year will be its uh, what thirtieth, yeah, yeah, thirtieth. Because oh. I mean, we're we're you know we're just coming up to the this period of time. Uh, Thirty years ago, we were kind of just waiting for the to sign the dotted line uh to go and join the rock and roll circus yes uh, and it was kind of like it seemed to wait take about three or four months before from them saying yeah we want to sign you till it get agreed and whatnot my god that's so, so that must have been so when you went to do the second album what was the atmosphere like with the band were you you know, was it quite interesting? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, I Jonathan, mean, it was. It was, re it was really recordings over a long time, wasn't it? Yeah, because we had done preparations before because we were still in factory. We had been planning it, and we had as Jay's uh, care from ACR had been going to produce it, and he had actually came up and spent some time in Edinburgh with us listening to songs and actually sent, doing some work on the songs and stuff. But obviously everything collapsed after the uh, factory came to an end. It was, I think it was Ian's driving force to get all the stuff together and various demos that we'd done and we ended up getting one of your friends who was a sound engineer to help us to put some other tracks down and add things on, uh, John Coben, and uh, yeah. spent a long Scott, time doing that. 
Yeah, the album would never, the second album would never have happened if it had been for John Corbin. Right. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah. a he's he's a sound designer for films these days. Uh, I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but the last time I saw him, I bumped into him at the show in, at Edinburgh Film Festival, uh, the showing of an Icelandic film, and I was thinking, I thought that's John, and I said, "What are you doing here?" And he said, "Oh, I did the sound for this." <laughs> so, oh, okay. And that is part one of the interview I had with the Wendy's featuring the one and only Jonathan Renton vocalist and Ian White on guitar. There is part two. It's all about Zoom, but um, we won't talk about that at the moment. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. I'm not going to give you my contact details because, frankly, who cares? Right. I must go and save this, export it. I'll be back. <laughs>